0: Welcome to Episode 7 of The Riser. I'm Greg Strong at the Canadian Press here with Post Media's Ted Wyman. And we are thrilled to be joined by Sportsnet's Arash Madani, who's just back from covering the Super Bowl in Las Vegas. He spent many years working some of the biggest events in sports. An award-winning broadcaster who was a Blue Jays sideline reporter for many years, has covered the highest levels of tennis, has worked multiple Super Bowls, NBA Finals, World Series, you name it. And he's also the president of the Kirk Cousins Fan Club. Before we get to Arash, Teddy, what's going on? I see you uh, you finally left Mexico and back in Winnipeg. What's happening?
1: I feel like we're trading places here, G-Man. I mean, uh, you've got the palm trees now, and I've got the snowy Winnipeg winter going on. But yes, I finally did decide to come back from Mexico. I thought I better come and do some work, you know. The curling world is busy. The hockey world is busy. The CFL offseason, it's all very important. And, uh, you know, we've got to come back from Mexico every so often just to check in on the world. But you actually are there on assignment. So how is it in Florida right now and especially being around Blue Jays training camp?
0: Yeah, it's it's great. It's uh, a very rainy, chilly weekend. Finally, the sun has come out here. I'm in Clearwater, Florida it's interesting you know i think a lot of baseball fans might think that the spring training stuff happens during the day and, and into the early evening not the case these guys get started at 6 30 7 a.m get their workouts in they have team meetings starting around 7 30 or 8 so we're actually our day is done around 3 or 3 30 p.m which works well for this edition of the riser but ted a quick question for you i'm in clearwater about 15 minutes from dunedin who is Clearwater's most famous resident? Does it? Do you know Clearwater, Clearwater, Clearwater Beach?
1: I have been to Clearwater Beach a couple of years ago, and it's a really awesome place. But it's not coming to me. I, is this an obvious one, or am I really messing up here?
0: Let me give you a hint. Here we go. Can you can you make that out on the camera? It's the Hulk. Hulk, Hulk Hogan. We've been hanging by Clearwater brother. Beach has his own retail outlet, just over the bridge there. I'll be heading there tomorrow but i picked up this beauty last year <laughs> hulk headband i got the wristband and i might do the uh, classic tear off tank top tomorrow we'll have to see well i know when i was there going here.
1: they had some awesome sand castles going on the last time i was there it was really something special i mean we're talking like the pyramids of uh of giza level of uh of construction on these things so i don't know like a giant sand hulk that'd be pretty cool don't you think
0: I'm gonna make the road trip tomorrow and I'll, uh, I'll tell you all about it, episode eight. Let, let's get her going with Arash here. I'm, I'm keen to get started with our, with our guests.
1: Yeah, Arash, great to have you aboard here. Uh, obviously, Greg has already given you a great introduction and uh, we both know that you've been around this uh, sports world in Canada for a long time, doing a lot of different things um, and, uh, and, and been with Sportsnet since I think 2009. So Arash, welcome. Great to have you here, and I am ready to ask my first question. And I mean, I think it's a pretty obvious one. You were at the Super Bowl, and this was just a wild Super Bowl. It's like Super Bowl meets Taylor Swift meets Las Vegas meets an epic overtime game. So you had a firsthand perspective at all. Where does that rank among all the sporting events you've covered in your career?
2: Well, I think it's the event that had the most creatures crawling around uh, the day before an event. I mean, Saturday, Vegas, Super Bowl, Super Bowl in Vegas... Um, poser Central, everybody looking for a table where somebody else can drop 50 grand on a bottle um, to, to have that table. It was um, it was a scene on the Saturday night. As for the game itself, fellas. Um, you know, terrible first half, outstanding second half, puzzling overtime. and of course, Patrick Mahomes did it again you know it's second straight year the better team did not win but the best player on the field who happens to be the best quarterback on the field ends up winning. It's a,
1: it was a pretty special game I mean I watched it down in Mexico and there was you know it, it, it's not maybe not like the level of what it would be in some places in the U.S. or Canada uh, in terms of the excitement but there was a lot of people you know bandying about that was one maybe not the best game I've ever seen but certainly one of the most interesting games you've ever seen, with the way it all went down, and of course that Taylor Swift factor, which I mean, that just, I mean, that's the most watched Super Bowl of all time, and that's what I predicted last week on the riser, and certainly seemed to come true. Um, Arash, just and just to follow up quickly on that, you've been to these things before, obviously, and um, th- was this one just that different?
2: No, no, there, honestly, fellas they're all the same. They really are. I mean, yeah, it's a little different. The flavor from city to city can change a little bit, but in terms of setup, in terms of format, in terms of access, in terms of how the week unfolds, okay, it's a little different commuting around Arizona um, to get from one place to another rather than, you know, Neither team stayed in Vegas. They were both out in resorts in Henderson that were like not even five minutes apart. So they were detached from the entire thing other than media night Monday in the stadium and game day Sunday in the stadium. Um, they were all sequestered out there. Nobody was getting in and nobody was getting out. Um, but it's it's funny how it goes. I mean, Teddy, you and I have done a bunch of great Cups together. I just find these weeks, these cities, temperature-wise, it's a little different. Option-wise, in terms of what you're going to do at night, is a little different. But most of the week is pretty much the same, no matter where you go, no matter where it is, and no matter who's playing in the game. Even Vegas.
0: rush I'd like to transition, if I could, from the NFL to the CFL. I think a lot of... Folks who might enjoy your work on Sportsnet in print, radio, television form may not know that you had some communications background on your uh, long resume in the early 2000s, working with the Winnipeg Blue Bombers and the Ottawa Renegades. And I was keen to rash the Renegades, things a little differently. Do you have wow. a go-to story when people ask about the experience of working for Renegades owner Bernie Gleberman and President Lonnie Gleberman?
2: Yeah, I mean, we didn't really see Bernie much. Bernie would come in on game days or maybe the day before. Alani was the day-to-day hands-on guy. 2005, crazy to think that was almost 20 years ago. But that was the summer of Hurricane Katrina. And the hurricane hit during the bye week, during one of the Renegades bye weeks, you know, late August, whatever that was. And no team in the CFL happened to have happenstance, right? more dudes on their roster from Louisiana, Alabama, Mississippi, kind of that whole Gulf area that just got decimated by the hurricane. And I remember that earlier in the year, uh, Lonnie the Great had come up with a Mardi Gras promotion where everybody who came into the stadium, um, every man, every male who came into the stadium was given a set of Mardi Gras beads. And the woman who had the most Mardi Gras beads at the end of the game would win a thousand dollars. And after a little while, that got shut down. I think the league and the city just had enough of it because of what was happening in the stands. So anyway, there are boxes and boxes and I mean hundreds of boxes of beads. So left over. So Katrina hits, and Lonnie pops into my office, and he says, hey, you're seeing the stuff about the hurricane." I'm like, "Yeah," I said, "You know." So many guys are affected by this, namely our quarterback. Shout out to Kerry Joseph, now the quarterback's coach of the Chicago Bears. Um, But KJ's, you know, down there, stuck in it, affected by it. And I said, I got an idea, Lonnie, about um, what we can do with all the leftover beads. And before I could even say what my idea was, he's like, we'll send them the beads and i'm like no lonnie they've lost their homes they've lost their livelihoods they've lost loved ones beads will do them no good but maybe we can sell the beads for a dollar or two or five at our next home game everybody who comes in and all proceeds go to the red cross he just kind of looked at me he's like well yeah if you think that'll work um so Lonnie just thought beads were gonna be the solution to all ills in Ottawa.
1: Wow, that sounds like you know doing a PR job is pretty easy if that's all you gotta do.
2: Well then, <laughs> then Greg, I go to, uh, to Winnipeg and there was a uh, smug sports editor of the Winnipeg Sun who wanted to get the former kicker who had been released by the head coach into the press box and the president of the team wanted nothing to do with Troy Westwood in the press box. And so the sports editor made sure that on the front page of the Winnipeg Sun every day was like a ticker, a countdown of how many days Troy Westwood um, had been banned from the Winnipeg press box. And it was around 2008 that cuts in media really started, travel budgets got slashed, et cetera. And Kirk Penton at the time was the uh, was the beat writer, of the bombers and mid season um the sun cut all the travel and i said you know kirk if you just sold that space on the front page of the paper to an advertiser that could probably pay for your travel to come on the road but instead uh but instead you got the westwood uh the westwood clock on the front page so um that that's why you're not on the road
1: man i love it
2: when people
1: answer the questions before i even ask them because that was going to be my next question because the rash and i must have gone back and forth about 50 times about this thing. I had a boss who was saying, get Troy into that press box. And you had a boss saying, don't let Troy anywhere near that
2: press box. And uh, it was about- you Well, know, Ted and I are in the middle, like, none of this is a big deal. Like, who, like, who cares? Um, and like, I mean, I mean, Lyle was hell bent. Lyle Bauer was the president. He was hell bent on it. The league office is calling me. They're like, why is this such a thing? And I'm like- you gotta talk to Lyle like I can't change I can't change the president's mind, you know. Um,
1: but yeah, good times. It was fun. The interesting thing is Troy ended up getting into media and he was in radio for years in Winnipeg uh, with a morning talk show. and obviously he's uh, you know he I think he was truly somebody that was worthy of being involved in that. But I think what really was wrong with the bomber from the bomber standpoint was that he was cut that year. Yeah. And we're now wanting to put him in there when they felt like he had an axe to grind. I think Doug Barry was the coach, in, am I right? All right, he was, Yeah, and I you know they felt like he probably had an axe to grind against Doug, and it was going to be this big problem. So it ended up being an interesting little thing. And and the the publisher, of course, was the one who said, "Let's put this ticker up there." And that ticker ran all year long. And I do believe Troy got into the last game of the season. We had to give up one of our seats. Arash stood firm on the whole thing. And uh, of course, you and I ended up being friends after all that anyway, so not too big, too much damage on it. But was that the thing you remembered most about being, uh, working with the Bombers?
2: No, there's many things that I remember (laughs) working for the Bombers. Um, They had just come off in 2007, got to the Grey Cup. And I remember the general manager, Brendan Tamman when he called me in like April or May, he's like, hey, man, just come here. It's normal here um come win a ring just spend a season then you can just see where your career is going to take you and so the banjo bowl which is the the week the game after labor day
1: created uh, by troy westwood
2: (laughs) created by troy westwood go figure um the bombers led by 17 in the fourth quarter and michael bishop came off the bench for the rough riders and beat the bombers at home um and the team drops to two and eight on the season. And, you know, this was a season where there was a controversy with cheerleaders. They're letting off fireworks after losses. Um, internally, it was just a disaster. Uh, the president was trying to fire the coach. The coach had no idea this was going on. The franchise running back, who is a mess, gets traded on Labor Day. After Labor Day, I just walk into Brendan's office and I'm like, it's normal here, huh? Come win a ring here, huh? It's the, the records two and eight, and you just lost to Michael Bishop. Um, so many memories from uh, from that from that two thousand eight season in Winnipeg.
0: Speaking of the CFL and the league office, you have not been afraid to criticize the current commissioner Randy Ambrosi on social media, Rash. I'm curious what your thoughts are on Ambrosi, the CFL now. And if you've seen any growth under the commissioner, which direction are things headed, in your opinion?
2: Yeah, Greg, I don't know if it's criticism. I think it's just speaking the truth. And I think what the CFL and many stakeholders of the league really hate is the truth being um, being repeated to them, being regurgitated to them. I think they really get upset when their hypocrisy gets... Um, I don't know, gets unveiled, gets, gets reported, you know? Um, look, there, there's a, in COVID, everybody got money. Every business, no matter how big or how small, got money. And, you know, if you're a grandmother in rural Newfoundland and you were stitching pillows, you probably got thirty dollars or $40,000 from the federal government. And Randy went in front of the, in front of the federal government House Committee on Finance, and asked for $150 million and did so without a business plan and did so without consulting the players. And so when the MPs asked him, well, where's your business plan? He said, "Uh, I don't have one. And when they asked, where um, where are the players in all this? He said, we haven't even consulted with them. And four years later, here we are, and the players uh, have to file a grievance just to get information from the league that was collectively bargained. Um, You know, it's just on and on we we could go with all of this. So it's funny, we now live in a, we now exist in a media environment where independence is very, very minimal across the board. And people are so um conflicted and people are so protective of their of their of those who give them information they're afraid to speak the truth or they refuse to speak the truth and when it comes to this i'm like i'm one of the few who's just gonna say it how it is and speak my mind and have an opinion and people say well you hate the cfl for that and i'm like well no it's just that they didn't have any bilingual signage at their championship game. The very basic things that are requ- that are requirements, they continue to fail at. And I really believe that if it wasn't for the reporting and the hysteria that some of our French colleagues had, that some, some of the English colleagues had, um, the minimal... French uh, presence that was there at the Grey Cup that the Alouettes won in November wouldn't have even existed. And you best believe it'll be different next year in Vancouver, regardless of who's playing in the game. And if it wasn't people just pointing that out, speaking facts and the truth, which they hate so much, then it wouldn't have happened.
1: That really was a major oversight, Arash, and it was exposed because Montreal got into the game. I mean, probably people don't talk about it if that hadn't happened that way. But then a lot of French media showed up and they definitely made it known that that was the situation. Penny, so.
2: I can't tell you the number of French media and even a couple of French staff of the league and even some French players and even some French assistant coaches who came to me privately and thanked me and talked about how upset they were and how insulted they were by this staff staff who work for said commissioner um so when you like the the point i think fellas is that when you're incapable of executing that at the very base level what else are you missing along the way
1: Arash, I uh, just want to transition here. I mean, you're obviously a veteran journalist, been doing this for a long time. But you've never hidden your love of a certain pro sports team. We're seeing the logo right now as we yeah. talk to you. Um, certainly on social media, you 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 have that other persona as the fan. And, uh, you know, there are many people like you in Winnipeg, huge Vikings fans. They know your pain. I know, I think we all know you're a big Kirk Cousins guy or maybe the opposite of that. I'm just opposite curious that, how you... Yeah. How do you find that engagement with your social media follow, followers when you provide both professional and personal thoughts as a fan about sports in your posts?
2: Well, you guys mentioned the Super Bowl thing. I'm very fortunate um, to have covered a number of Super Bowls. And somebody asked me, you know, how, how do you separate church from state? And I said, well, the good news is we don't really cover the NFL until Super Bowl. So as a Vikings fan, there will never be a conflict of interest um because you know they're just never going to be in the game i have i've come to that understanding and it's the last thing i have left to root for because i pretty much cover everything else in some way shape or form so you know there's there's a small little part of me that still roots for the auto or red blacks even though that wasn't we folded the renegades a long time ago but I just think it's important for the Red Blacks to do well because football in Ottawa can can succeed. Um, but guys, like the fan gets beat out of you in our business. So at least this is the last thing I've got left. And it's super fun when your team is miserable um, with no hope of doing anything whatsoever. Um, that sometimes you can just, you know, show that side of yourself to people that... I'm not just the, the, you know, the, the press box person. I'm not just the media professional. Hey man, I'm a fan too.
0: Last one from me, Arash, and it's a two-parter on the Blue Jays. I hear from a lot of fans who wonder why you're not on the beat anymore. And two, can you tell us about the balance that's required between asking probing or tough questions when your outlet is a rights holder?
2: Yeah, sure. So, um, I was on the Blue Jays beat from 2009 to 2013, then I wasn't from in 14, 15 and 16. Um, I was on the Jays beat from 17 through to the end of the 22 season. Um, They decided to make a change. They called me and they said, uh, we're taking you off Blue Jays and you're going to be doing a lot of everything else. and I've been around this business long enough to know that when they make a decision on beats, they've made a decision already and there's nothing you can do and you move on. Um, and uh, I'll be honest with you, I'm, the plan is, the plan, it's February, um, July's a long time away in our business. The plan is to go to Paris 2024 this summer, which I probably wouldn't have had the opportunity to do um, if I was doing the Jays. So it was it was a great run. Uh, working a live show with um I, I don't know i'm biased i think it's i think it's the best uh, local slash national broadcaster a country has anytime you get a chance to work with dan shulman you get better as a broadcaster it was great they decided to make a change um and 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 you move on with things the 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 question part is really interesting greg because and maybe this has a little bit to do with why I'm not in the role anymore. I don't know. Um, I would ask the questions that I felt needed to be asked. Um, Understanding not who I worked for, but understanding that there is a relationship that every day you're there. So you have to balance how you're going to handle, you know, To me covering a beat and i don't know how you guys feel about this to me covering a beat means it's not just that you're you know covering a team you have to try and understand the personality personalities of every single player every single coach every single staff member know when you can go in when you can back off who you can go ask certain questions to who you can't um there was never a time where I'm like, okay, I work for the rights holder. I can't ask this question, but I definitely knew when I could kind of push the envelope a little bit and how far to go and then when to back off. And I think part of that had to do with who you were talking to more than anybody else. So it's a long answer. Um, but if there was a tough question, I had no problem asking it. I often did. Um, and, you know, there, there was a lot of stuff that, that went on over those years, from Marcus Stroman to um, the ups and downs of, of 97 or whatever losses to the COVID years, where access was limited. Um, you, I think you just had to gauge the temperature. And once you had a, had a gauge of who and what the person was, that, that really helped you with how far you could take something in a certain situation.
1: Arash, I feel like we could sit here and talk all night long. There's a million stories out there. Some of them you, Greg, and I have shared on beats around the world, around the country. Um, I honestly can't thank you enough for coming to join us today. There's so many more sports that I know because you're not doing that Blue Jays beat that you're involved in all these other things. And you've got such a wide range of of knowledge about the sports world. So thanks so much for coming along and
2: sharing some with us on the riser. You got it. Thanks for having me boys. now I'll just say this after last summer, I left the FIBA world cup saying Shea Gilgis, Alexander is the best player in the world. And at the time it seemed far-fetched more and more. We're seeing that Shea Gilgis, Alexander is the best basketball player in the world and very quietly last night in the all-star game 30 plus points again um he just doesn't he doesn't uh he doesn't let you know it he does, he has no need to spike the football in your face this kid's legit thanks so much rash
1: What a great interview that was with Arash Madani, a true veteran of the the media scene for many years in Canada, also did work in PR and um, and a long-time sideline reporter for the Blue Jays, but he's just covered all these big events. I was saying, you know, Greg, it's like we could have talked to that guy all day long because he's just got his hand in so many different
0: things. Yeah, a real treat to have Arash on, and as you say, he's covered anything and everything. And the thing that sticks out with me is that he's just so smooth. You know, it could be a post-game interview by the Jays dugout. It could be a a big tennis event, the Davis Cup or something like that. And he maintains that consistency, that great delivery and smooth interviewing style. I think that's uh, why he's been in the biz so long. He's a very talented guy.
1: Yeah, nothing phases him, just like you, Greg Strong. Uh, It's time to move on to the hot topics, Greg. And I can't think of a hotter topic right now than... Where you are, Dunedin, Florida, the Toronto Blue Jays. I mean, that's uh, what a sign of spring that is. That the we've already had the pitchers and catchers. Everybody's reporting now. Uh, the full spring training getting underway. What's your report from Dunedin, sir?
0: Well, first of all, for those watching on video, I've moved inside. Uh, some Wi-Fi issues here outside the hotel, but I'm. Changed now. I'm I'm indoors and uh, and feeling good about the vibe here in Clearwater, just outside of Dunedin. As you say, the boys of summer are back. Third week of February. It's hard to believe. It's already uh, we're on the eve of a fresh season. It seems like that two-game wildcard playoff loss in Minnesota was just yesterday. But it's interesting. I, I'd say in general here at camp, it's a lot of the same as as last camp. It's you know very much the same roster. They did lose a couple players. Uh, Whit Merrifield, uh, Matt Chapman remains an unsigned free agent. So they'll have a different look on the infield, but the core, the base of this team is the same. Some of the interesting storylines, uh, we've got a five-year deal for Cuban right-hander Yariel Rodriguez, who had an availability today for the first time, and he hopes to uh, become a starter this this season. You've also got Vladimir Guerrero Jr., of course, winning his arbitration case. And he arrived today for physicals and then uh, he'll be uh, available tomorrow on Tuesday, the first time. So it's kind of, um, you know, a, a bunch of storylines on the go here, but uh, it's a Blue Jays team. I'd say that seems confident and ready to take that next step, whether they've addressed the power shortage. We'll have to see Justin Turner talked today as well. Uh, he gives them some depth, some definite oomph in the middle of the lineup, whether that's enough, we'll have to, Wait and see. I did want to ask you, Ted, about some of the curling stories on the go, as always, just a plethora of things to write about and talk about. And let's start with Jennifer Jones announcing her retirement at the end of this season from the four-player game. What were your takeaways from that? And I don't think it's a question, but is she the greatest of all time? I think she is without a doubt.
1: Yeah, it's funny, you know, you and I talk about curling every time on the riser. I think we have every time. And for anybody who doesn't know, we both have been curling reporters for a long time in our careers. Um, And um, this week has been just off the charts. I mean, there's been so much news with the Scotties going on in Calgary. And as you said, it started with Jennifer Jones announcing that she was going to retire from the four-player game, I think she's going to continue on and mix doubles. She and her husband, Brent Lang, actually won the Canadian Championship just a year ago. And I think we're going to see Jennifer in a broadcast booth for a long time to come. I don't think she's going too far away, but she won't be on the ice at the Scotties anymore. And I wrote a, a big feature on Jen this week. I was quite um, moved to do so just because my career has been so intertwined with her. 25 years I've been covering her i've covered her at two different olympics been to china been to russia um i've covered her at world championships i've covered it at Scotty's all over the country and um i even wrote a book that was partly about jennifer jones and her teammates so i've just had this long history with her and i just don't think there's any question in my mind like you said that she's the best women's curler of all time on the mount rushmore of curling period and i think there are a lot of even male curlers who would say there may not be anyone more iconic than Jennifer Jones in this country. No, no, no one more recognizable in the game of curling. And I, in fact, wrote that very thing in my column that uh, I think she is Canada's most iconic curler. It did elicit a few responses from some people who were angry, saying, how, how can you say that? The Richardsons, Sandra Schmirler um, Rachel Homan, uh, a few other names come along. Brad Gushue obviously, has been amazing. Kevin Martin. But what I mean when I say that is just recognizability popularity um the ability to have uh marketing for herself off the ice in terms of sponsorships all those kinds of things she just is the goat in that area and on top of that an incredible player with nerves of steel who's been in every big moment and flourished including an olympic gold medal at the olympics in 2014 so Again, you're not going to get any argument from me when uh, the statement is said, is she the greatest of all time?
0: Absolutely, she is. I think she's a clear number one with respect to all other potential number ones. She is it. She's the GOAT. And a few things come to mind. She's won everything there is to win. An incredible 20-year run. I mean, her first national title was what, 05? And she's still going strong now here in 24. Who knows? She could win the Scotties this week in Calgary. She's in top form right now. And the other thing I was thinking of over that 20 year span, if you want to skip to make a shot, to win the Olympics, to win a Worlds, to win a nationals, who do you want settling into the hack? And I think Jennifer Jones is the answer. So many great curlers, but she's the one who delivers at crunch time and gets results. And what a career. And it's not over yet, of course, as you say. Nick That's doubles okay. on the go. If she if she does walk away right now, she'll
1: walk away. If, if she doesn't win the Scotties, you know, then that means she walks away almost a little sooner. But she'd walk away as the last person to win a world championship for Canada. That was in 2018 in the four player game. She would walk away as one of the last two, Brad Jacobs also won a gold medal in 2014, but Jones won it uh, maybe a day earlier or a day later. I can't remember which it was. And 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 we haven't won any gold medals in four-player curling since that either. So, I mean, really, it, it's not just uh, a short amount of greatness. It's many, many years of greatness and still very near the top right now. And, of course, Greg, the curling world rocked, I think, by some other news that came out at the Scotties this week. And that was basically two hours before the first game. There was an announcement that... Uh, Brianne Harris, the lead for Carrie Anderson's Team Canada, had been ruled ineligible. And this apparently was a ruling that came from a third party, not from Curling Canada. They were made aware that this person was ineligible and she has not been able to play. And nobody's been able to talk about it. And every single person I know who thinks I know anything about curling has asked me about it. And I wish I could tell them more, but I can't. And Greg, I know you're in Dunedin, so maybe not completely plugged in on this. But just what are your thoughts on what we've seen here? Because it is bizarre.
0: Yeah, I mean, like your phone. My phone was going, you know, doing cartwheels on uh, Friday afternoon when that news came out. And to me, yes, I mean, we obviously we don't want to speculate. And there's been a ton of speculation as to what it might be. What's intriguing to me is how everyone reacts to this kind of thing. Curling Canada, TSN, the broadcaster, the team itself, the coach, the alternate. There are so many great storylines that come out of this. I find it all fascinating. And we saw that team, the four-time defending champions, skipped by Kerry Anderson, have a really impressive performance in their Scotties debut in Calgary this week, or last weekend, I guess now. And to me, that was really impressive. I really would love to talk to Coach Reed Carruthers about how he got his players to be focused and you talk about avoiding distractions. That is one heck of a distraction to put on the back burner, but you got to do it. Your national championship starts in a few hours. So full full marks to Reed, full marks to the alternate, Christine Karwacki, I believe is how you say the name, um, who stepped in seamlessly. And that team was rolling a great start. We'll see how they do through the rest of pool play here over the coming days. But I still think they are a good bet to the, for a playoffs to be. I think it'd be really something if they made it all the way to the final, but who knows? I wouldn't bet against them.
1: Yeah, I agree, Greg. But I got to tell you, what's pissing people off is the fact that there's just no clarity. That there's just this cone of silence about it, and. You know i have come to understand that curling canada's hands are kind of tied in this situation they're working it's a, it's another party uh, another organization that's policies that they're following in this situation and they've been told not to say anything the curlers have been told not to say anything but that creates this ambiguity this mystery and it's what's got so many people wondering what's going on and to be honest there's a lot of people that are annoyed and angered that they're not given any more information and I think they feel bad even for brianne harris herself because there's so much speculation. You go on Twitter, there's 50 different reasons why she's not in in the lineup right now. And and people come up with wild theories. And it's just not it's not really fair to that person. But I have talked to some curlers who say on the other hand, if it's something that isn't proven yet or or maybe can be contested that perhaps she's you know, best off not having this already be out there publicly. So it's a very interesting thing. But I, I will say I think there's a lot of concern in this country after what happened with Hockey Canada, what's happened with other organizations over the years, that there's too much of a shroud of secrecy when it comes to some of these organizations. And, and, and there's a concern that if there were, you know, a belief that if there were more transparency, these things would go better.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it's just another reason to avoid social media, I'd say, for starters. But B, there's when you have situations like this, you have an athlete and you have that athlete's privacy. And that trumps making an announcement. That trumps giving details to a curling fan who might be wondering. Because we don't know what this is about. We have no idea. We have no idea whether there's an appeal on the go, whether there's... We we, we don't know. And so we have to respect that process, respect an athlete's privacy. I'm okay with that. Um, But what I would like to see is uh just details on what happens now how the process unfolds when you do have a situation like this um because i think a lot of curling fans wondered you know why is kristen throwing for stones for this team you know and i think it's important to just lay that out lay out what you know and what you don't know and you can't touch don't touch it until we get news of some kind i uh you know I, I love talking curling with you ted but uh, and we touched on this with rash but that super bowl i think does deserve a few minutes of of discussion really wanted to know what you thought of the entire thing not only the game but the hoopla the host city overtime the whole business how would you sum up that super bowl
1: i don't know kind of perfect from an nfl standpoint like what could they have asked for more to have your Super Bowl in Las Vegas and have it be this really entertaining, exciting game. It wasn't a perfectly played game by any means, but I thought the defenses were fantastic. And I think that's something that people don't give enough credit to. It's like, it's a bad football game because there wasn't enough offense. Well, the defense has played great, so let's not lose sight of that. And then you had, of course, the Kansas City Chiefs with this magic that they have somehow managed to harness and bring back again, and Patrick Mahomes himself, it's like, why would anybody ever bet against this guy? I mean, if it comes down to an important moment, he gets the job done, and it's really incredible, like, I'm sorry, man, Tom Brady may only be the goat for so much longer, because this is a guy who has done as much or more than Brady did by, by the age that he's at, and he's got a lot more years to go, so um, I thought that was just... Perfect. I thought the, you know, more people watch that game than ever before. And I'm sure that had a lot to do with the increased interest in the NFL and certain demographics because of the Taylor Swift thing, because of the Travis Kelsey thing, Kelsey plays a big role in the game. The 49ers. Well, they played pretty well. They, they, you know, unfortunately shot themselves in the foot at some wrong times and they end up losing. But I, I just, I, I, the people that I talked to, some people just looked at me and said, was that the best Super Bowl ever? Like, I'm trying to think, what 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 beats that? What beats overtime? What beats that kind of excitement and and having those kind of names involved in getting it done? And I, I couldn't really come up with an answer for them other than, yeah, it's right up there.
0: Well, on this one, I completely disagree. I felt it was a weak Super Bowl until. You know what? Halfway through the second half, and then things really picked up. After the first two quarters, I'm like, I want some nachos, and I want to turn the game off. I was, I understand great defenses, you know, win Super Bowls, etc. I was looking to be entertained, and I can't remember watching two quarters of football and being so bored with respect <laughs> to both teams. And then the halftime show, I'm like, okay, this is where things are going to pick up. And I thought it was, it was okay, you know, the uh, the usher halftime show. That was all right. Six, six and a half out of 10. So I'm like, man, oh man, this all this buildup. When is the Super Bowl going to deliver? And boy, it did deliver finally towards the end of the third quarter and into the fourth and great overtime. I had a few takeaways, Ted. We'll just go through them real quick. How does one team not know some of the overtime rules heading into the biggest game of the year, Super Bowl on the line, and you're not quite sure about the process? That was stunning to me.
1: Different two. in the in the regular season, I think that's the reason. But
0: number two, how does that Kelsey bumping into his head coach not get more play during the game and more discussion after it? It seemed to be oh, well, you know, they won. We can focus on the victory now. That's a major thing. I mean, Reed was nearly knocked over. Was, I thought that was a stunning piece of uh, video. I couldn't believe it when I saw it. Very rare, and I think. Wasn't talked about enough. And finally, the third thing, you can never bet against Patrick Mahomes in a playoff game. He went through Buffalo. He went through Baltimore. And then he went through San Francisco. And he may not have been in perfect Patrick Mahomes form, but when you're talking a two-minute drill, who do you want running it? You want Mahomes. What a performance.
1: Yeah. I was going to tell you, I, we were in this bar, this like pool hall in in Mexico, uh, basically, it had a roof over the table, and that was it. you know, it was an open open air place. and the bathroom and the kitchen were across the street and down the road a little bit. <laughs> so uh, I missed the halftime show because there was one bathroom and everybody was across the street trying to use it. <laughs> but I was okay with that because really sorry, none of it was my thing anyway. Uh, but I did see the game. I thought it was great. Um, I do appreciate what you're saying. There's no question, there's some flaws to it, but it was, uh, It was an entertaining day, and I will say once again, if you watch some of the defensive plays in that game, some of the breakups by defensive backs in the end zone on deep passes, those are great football players' plays, and they don't get enough credit. Greg, I just want to transition to golf. And Canadian Mackenzie Hughes was on the broadcast doing a walk-and-talk at the Genesis Invitational this week, and he said he believes pro golfers have lost sight of why they got in the game. He says, for most people, it's all about money now not about the spirit of competing against the best of the best and trying to win tournaments. What are your thoughts on what the good Canadian boy, Matthews had to say on the state of golf?
0: My first thought is, yes, it's all about the money. These professional golfers make a ton of cash. You know, you're top 100 or whatever. You're, you're going into a top 10, finishing in the top 10. You're making some solid coin. And... I mean, I've covered a few golf tournaments over the years. It's like these, they have their, like a mini entourage, the agent, the physical therapist, a crew handles their, like little mini corporations walking around all through. And it's like, why not? Because they're worth, some of them are worth tens of millions of dollars. It, it's like, yes, it is about the money. Of course, these golfers are very competitive and want to win. But I mean, if you can make... A million and a half dollars by performing well on a weekend yes it is about the money it's not necessarily about well you know i really wanted a 64 there instead of a 66 it's yeah i made an extra 150 grand by sinking that birdie butt you know that's i think you know it's it's the reality of 2024 professional sport where it really is all about the cash and we see it when we cover pro sports all the time these are very well-paid athletes and it's not like decades ago when they were pro athletes were you know playing in professional leagues and then they'd have summer jobs working on the farm or tending bar or fighting fires or whatever it is those days are gone these are individual corporations now doing very well for themselves so it's uh it's interesting i don't make make no mistake the competitive fire still burns true but i think it's all about the cash
1: yeah, and I mean, obviously, with the live tour and whatnot, we've seen a lot more of that. But I think what he's getting at is that if the the money's guaranteed, where does the competitive spirit go? And I mean, how much more are you going to put into trying to win that tournament if you're getting the same amount of money, whether you win it or not? And I, I'm sure that there's a lot of people believe that. And I'll tell you what, I don't like that that's the way golf has gone, because I do think that changes the game. I do think it takes away from some of the greatness of it. But I'm not going to say that I necessarily blame players for wanting to do that. Because if you play in the NFL, as long as you play, you get the same money whether you play good or bad. And in baseball, how many guys have signed 10-year contracts for hundreds of millions of dollars and then been dogs for the rest of their careers? I mean, like, it happens, right? It happens. Mm -hmm. And it happens in the NHL. It happens in all pro sports. And, And, you know, sometimes teams have to just get out from underneath these deals because they... They paid people too darn much and they're not getting enough for it. So I would understand why a, a golfer wants to say, Hey, I'm here. I'm the show. I'm why there's, this is on television. I'm why all these people are standing out here uh, cheering and having beers and, and, and making money for the golf course and the, and the organizers. Why am I not going to be guaranteed to be paid? And I do get it. It's an interesting debate though. I think there needs to be some kind of balance. And I think Mac Hughes, has the right line of thinking when it comes to that.
0: For sure. It's, it's an interesting one. Yeah. Guaranteed money in golf. It's uh that's a debate that I think will, will last into this year and uh, in the coming years. So we'll see what happens there. Let's shift to hockey for a little uh, NHL talk, Ted. And the Morgan Riley suspension was a big talking point in Toronto and around the league. Of course, he's, you know, a real rock on that Maple Leafs blue line. What were your takeaways on the suspension? Was it the right number? And perhaps bigger picture here: Was it right for him to go after the opponent for violating the code, the so-called code, by taking a slap shot into an empty net? Teddy, take us away.
1: When I just say yes,
0: and that's it. Everything they got everything right. I mean, I I, you
1: know, there's the code is a joke, really. I'm sorry, there shouldn't be a code anymore. We're beyond that in 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 hockey, I think, well, we're really not, but we probably should be, but I do understand why they would take exception to it because it's just not something you're supposed to do. So really Greg knows that he shouldn't be doing that and he did it. And it's a taunting kind of a play. And you generally are probably going to have to answer for it. I think Morgan Riley is not the guy that you would ever peg as someone that's going to go and try to intentionally hit somebody in the head and draw a suspension. He's a notoriously a pretty clean player but he made a mistake. He went in there, he had his stick up. He got the guy right in the head and it's, you know, it's a sucky play, right? The guy just scored. It's like, if you, if you go after a guy after he just scored against you, yeah, it looks pretty bad. So I don't <laughs> think that that was a very intelligent play by Morgan Riley. I think he was given a suspension that was worthy. It might not be popular in Toronto, um, you know, but I think the rest of the league looked at that and said, yeah, I mean, this is, you can't do that. I don't know. Maybe if he doesn't even hit him in the head, I don't even know if it is a suspension, a suspension, but he did hit him in the head. And I think that's what you're going to get. And I mean, did he send some message now? Ridley Gregg probably isn't going to do that again. I mean, I, I wouldn't think he would, but it's certainly a, uh, a very interesting debate. And and curious to hear what you took out of it from the center of the universe.
0: Uh let me tell you something ted i was getting i was so tired of all the morgan riley suspension talk it was like 72 hours of ink sports radio talk i'm like who cares they play better when morgan riley's not playing anyway their record is like what are they like 14 and 2 and he's on the bench it's like yeah so what he misses a few games what's the big deal but to me i was thinking actually when i saw the play i thought that's as stupid as those personal fouls in the Super Bowl that I saw. I can't believe players are making dumb plays like that when the championship is on the line. And obviously, championship not on the line here. Morgan Riley, I think if he had a do-over, he wouldn't have done he wouldn't have done the cross check to the head. Not, not the smartest play for sure. I the one thing I do like is that it gave a little spice back to the Battle of Ontario which I have fond memories from 25 years ago when the Sens were really cooking and the Leafs had a decent team. Those are fun battles. I mean, it's great for the province. Hockey fans really got into it. Uh, so we'll see where it goes. I mean, Ottawa's got some work to do to get into the playoff mix and, and have that battle happen again. But my initial thought was, I thought it was hilarious that we guy kind of slapped it into the net, uh, an empty net, and, and the, the brouhaha that emerged after that, I thought was silly. Uh, not smart. And yeah, you pay the price with the suspension. And I think he learned a lesson.
1: Well, there you go. And I mean, maybe, you know, you had to get all the way out of Toronto down to Dunedin to get away from all that talk. And maybe you don't want me to bring up more Leafs talk, but I have to, I think, because man, what a season Austin Matthews is having. He's got 48 goals in 52 games. I mean, it's been a long time since anybody scored at a rate like that in the NHL. He's on pace to score 75. That would be the most since Timo Solani and Alex Mogilny in 92-93. Is he the obvious Hart Trophy winner to you right now? Or is it more of a great race? Because you've got Nikita Kucherov leading the league in scoring, Connor McDavid coming on like gangbusters. Not sure he can catch Kucherov, but maybe. David Pasternak, Nathan McKinnon. There's a lot of really good names there, but none of them are scoring like Matthews. What's your thoughts there?
0: Yeah, for the MVP, I think he's obviously in the mix. Um, I would, I think it'll be Connor McDavid at the end of the day. I think there's more, obviously more in, than just goals when it comes to uh, determining a hard Trophy winner. And I like to think of it as okay, if you have to pick your uh, pick a team right now, who you who's your first pick? And it's not Austin for me. It's Connor. Uh, just the way they're playing, the potential, the overall skill set. To me, Connor McDavid is the most valuable player in the NHL right now. Uh, But what a performance from Austin Matthews over the first two-thirds of the season. The guy is just on fire. And he's one of those players like McDavid. It's just amazing to me that a handful of players in the league can be like one quarter, one-fifth of a step ahead of everyone else and have that shot ready to go and just be in position just that fraction quicker than everyone else. And, yeah, Nikita Kucherov is in that league. Leon Dreisaitl is in that discussion. McDavid, Matthews. It's just amazing how they can just get to that higher level. Austin's really showing us something here. I think 70 goals is, you know, a pretty, pretty good chance he's going to score 70. Maybe 75 would really be something. And it takes you back to the days when Pavel Bure, Timu Solani, Wayne Gretzky were filling the net with regularity. Nice to see that that's happening uh, in
1: 2024. Uh, I, I He's my winner of the heart right now, and that's just because I give goal scoring just a little bit more. Um, you know, I do recognize there's more to it. It's sometimes about being more well-rounded. It's about your impact to your team anyway with the heart trophy. But take away those 48 goals, where are the Toronto Maple Leafs? I, I really believe that he's having a very special year and yet and and I like to see people get rewarded when they do
0: that. Well, here's my favorite part of the Riser podcast Ted. It's when we talk all-time stories. And you've got a beauty this week. Tell us about your all-timer for episode 7. What have you got? Ah, you know, it's funny I'm sticking with Toronto
1: for some reason. I've uh, I want a Toronto kick here today, but I just—it was a funny story because um, I, I I cover the Winnipeg Blue Bombers regularly. That's one of my beats, and the Blue Bombers built a brand new stadium in 2013. Uh, it's now called Princess Auto Stadium, I believe. It just went through a name change, but involved in that with, you know, with the the donors who helped get this built, they built these beautiful, absolutely gorgeous locker rooms. The Manitoba Bisons have a nicer locker room even than the Blue Bombers do, but uh, it's a really nice locker room and it's a really nice facility. And these guys practice with fantastic, all top of the line, you know, uh, weight equipment and and fantastic stuff. And so that's kind of what I'm used to uh, a few years into my role on the beat. And I was in Toronto and I was going to cover a Blue Bombers versus Argos game. And my boss at the Toronto Sun or at Post Media asked me to go and cover an Argos practice for them. They didn't have anybody available. They wanted somebody to go out and do it. I was there a day early. So he said, okay, well, you got, you know, can you go and cover this Argos practice? So I'm, okay, sure. So <laughs> I end up getting in an uber which takes me way out to downsview park and i mean i've never been there before i'm not from toronto so i don't know where the heck i'm going and the uber driver has no idea where we're going so we're driving in and out of these uh old facilities i don't know what the heck i don't know what that is out there but it was like kind of a deserted factory area it seemed like to me and finally you know all of a sudden here's this field and i'm the, i get out of the cab i'm the only one there i'm like now what, what am i doing here like what Where's the team? Where's everything? All of a sudden, a school bus pulls up and out come all the Argos players, all dressed, all ready to go. And they go out and they have their practice. So I'm like, great, okay, I'm here. So, you know, practice is wrapping up. And I, I went and talked to the PR guy and I said, okay, can I do interviews? And he says, no, no, we do interviews back at the back at the locker room. And I was like, oh, well, where's that? And he said, well, it's in Etobicoke. <laughs> so now i have to go and take another uber and they get back on the bus and they go to i think it's called don bosco high school in Tobico. apparently rob ford was the coach there and it's been closed and they were practicing there they had their facilities basically in the old gym they had a locker room set up i was told they actually did their walkthroughs sometimes in the parking lot and I mean, I'm going in there and I'm going like, how can these two teams be in the same league? Like, this just doesn't make any sense at all. I'm now interviewing guys in a high school gymnasium, you know, sitting in a makeshift locker room. And I'm wondering, like, you know, I'm sort of like, how do the Argos sign players? Like, how do you get people to come here and play? And And then, of course, as we know, it wasn't really especially at the time, there wasn't a lot of fans coming out either. And it just made you wonder. Um, but that was my experience of covering an Argos practice, uh, you know, one time in Toronto. And I understand that things are much better now because the last time I was there, I went to a practice and it was actually at, I think, varsity stadium. So it was a little bit closer to their, to their home digs, but man, that was a weird day for me.
0: There you go. The CFL is just the best. I love it. Great stories. Similar to curling. It's the, I find it's uh big reason why these sports are the best to cover. The uh, the stories that come out of coverage are, uh, are top shelf. I wanted to transition to curling, actually, for my all-timer. And with the Scotties Tournament of Hearts on the Go, I was thinking about some of the all-time great sellies as far as uh, scotties Briar celebrations and been able to cover uh, 12, 15 national curling championships over the years but there's one that sticks out and it's 2017 in St. John's, Newfoundland and Labrador. And that was the year Brad Guju, not Guju, Gujou, finally won the national championship. And I think he'd, he'd made it to the Briar 11 or 12 times. I don't know. He, it was like he was there every year, couldn't get it done. And, and the Briar finally returning to St. John's for I think the first time in 45 years or something. And you talk about curling, sports, Newfoundland royalty. When team Brad Gushu rolled in, Brad Gushu rolled into St. John's, it was next level. And that barn right on the main drag there was packed for most draws. And of course, we, were, we remember the memorable finish when Brad drew the four foot ring, I believe, and threw the broom up way up in the air, and the place just popped like next level. Just a fantastic selly that night. But as we know, at curling, the party often goes straight to the patch, which is a big party barn for those who've never been to a live curling event in Canada. Big party barn with music and and shuffleboard curling and beers are flowing and the whole thing. And I've been to a few patches over the years that have been next level. But the St. John's patch, after Brad's win, Team Gujus win, in 2017 was off the charts. Now I think they closed the patch before the final. But this year in St. John's, it's like they had a feeling something magical was going to happen. And that patch barn was packed until 3 a.m., Ted. And the team showed up with the tankard and a well-lubricated crowd and put the tankard into the Like the tankard was like uh, body surfing across the venue. It was just Next level. I've never been to a patch, A, that was open until 3 a.m. And B, was packed until 3 a.m. I mean, just a, a city, a province, and many curling fans around the country just loving Team Goju's Newfoundland and Labrador victory that year. That one is an absolute all-timer for me. Never been to a, a patch with that level. Never been to a curling event with that kind of pop at the end. And uh, really one for the for the all-time books for me.
1: And the best part is probably everybody still went out to George Street after it closed at three three a.m.
0: Because <laughs> that's the
1: first true. Never closes. I mean, I was there once covering curling, and I was in a bar, and it was about four a.m. And the cops <laughs> knocked on the door. And they were like, you know, you guys aren't supposed to be in there. And they just went, eh, just close the door. Then he goes, oh, this guy's a reporter from Winnipeg. We're treating him right. And it's like, okay, see you later. <laughs> what a city,
0: St. John's. The best.
1: in just at of... five a.m. at Christians, which is like the original bar on George Street. I think it was 5 a.m. I kissed wow. the cow.
0: Yeah, you kissed. I was going to say, did you kiss the fish?
1: I kissed the fish. It was, hey, I am an honorary Newfoundlander, my friend. So, I mean, I am I am very, very happy to hear your story. I was not at that briar. I was at the Scotties in 2005, which is where Jennifer Jones made the shot, which is one of the greatest highlights of her amazing career. How's that transition?
0: Love it. Well, we'll be watching uh, Jennifer and her team over the next week. It's uh would be really something if she were to win one more time in Calgary we'll watch that with great interest I'd like to give special thanks Ted to producer Alex Antonyatis, the Toronto Metropolitan University podcast lab social media intern Ryan McMahon music by Tuesday Night Jam logo design by John St. Clair follow us on X formerly known as Twitter Facebook Instagram and please subscribe to this podcast we will see you next time on the riser